You are listening to the What's the Proof podcast, where we seek to help doctors and other clinicians incorporate the best available evidence into their everyday clinical decision-making. The content of this podcast is meant for educational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized medical advice. The views and opinions expressed are those of the host and guest, and no content on this podcast has been approved or sanctioned by Atrium Health. Welcome to another episode of What's the Proof, the family medicine podcast that seeks to help family physicians and other clinicians incorporate the best available evidence into their everyday clinical decision making. I'm Bobby Scott, and with me today, as usual, are my Cabarrus Family Medicine Residency faculty colleagues, Sandy Robertson and Don Cavanis. Welcome, both of you. Sandy, I, I heard you were a big hit presenting at the uh, North Carolina Academy of Family Physicians winter meeting last weekend. I don't know about that. I think I offended a few, but we'll see. It, was, <laughs> it may or may not have been on purpose. It was fun. It was fun. It's one of my favorite meetings, and the crowd was energetic, and they laughed at my jokes, and yeah. they accepted a, a potentially inappropriate skit from SNL. Nice. And that was a big hit, so it was fun. It's always yeah. a really fun conference, yeah. And you can't beat being at the Grove Park Inn in Nashville in the wintertime. At time. Christmas time, I know. It's it was beautiful. It was very, very nice. Very nice. I enjoyed it. And as someone, guys, that was, someone that was in the room, I can speak to, as an educator, <sighs> I watched the crowd just as much as I watched her. And it was I was in the very back. And because of the SNL skit and all the other amazing teaching strategies that you used, everyone was super engaged. It was, yeah, it was nice. quite impressive. So you're, I'm a big fan. You. Thank you. Just a little bias, and that's okay. I'll take it. You're my family. It's okay. Well, <laughs> listen, uh, well, listeners, we have a fabulous episode in store for you today. We have Dr. Bobby Levy joining us uh, to share his expertise on the use of buprenorphine naloxone for the office-based management of opioid use disorder. I'm super excited for you all to hear this interview, as I really think this is one of the most life-saving interventions that a primary care physician can make right now, and it's just so rewarding and actually so much easier to do than you would think. Mm -hmm. So without further ado, let's go to the interview. Well, today we're pleased to welcome Dr. Bobby Levy as our guest. Dr. Levy is a seasoned family physician with over 15 years of experience, and he's a passionate advocate in the field of family medicine. He's a graduate of Cabarrus Family Medicine Residency Program, where he also serves as a faculty member. In addition, he holds a position as a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Dr. Levy balances his professional life with a rich personal life as a husband and father in three. And away from medicine, he pursues a range of interesting hobbies. He has an unusual fascination for snakes and perhaps equally perplexing to some, a fervent passion for Duke basketball. Bobby, welcome. We're glad to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so before we move to the main topic of the interview, I'm sure a lot of our audience is probably curious about your interest in snakes. Most people, including myself, don't want anything to do with them, but you actively venture into the woods in search of them. Why do you do that? Uh, you are right. Most people uh, go in the opposite direction of snakes. I just happen to find them a really, really interesting reptile. Um, and the diversity in the landscapes that they find themselves in. I also 
um, really enjoy. So I'm an avid outdoorsman, and so I like coupling hikes with um, flipping over rocks and, and logs and being surprised by uh, the really amazing biodiversity we have in North Carolina. So does does this hobby have a specific name? You know, just as bird enthusiasts go birding, does would you call this snaking? Uh, it's called herping. So people who go looking for uh, snakes and lizards and salamanders are this group of, uh, of herpers. And people herpers. who study those, uh, those particular species are herpetologists. So Fascinating. Well, the more you, you know. should come herping <laughs> with me sometime, you'd have a blast. Uh, maybe, maybe sometime. I will just keep a, keep a very far distance uh, from any snakes you actually uh, uh, you know, encounter. So, uh, well, seeing as this is not a snake podcast, uh, let's shift our focus to the topic at hand, which is office-based opioid treatment. And for those that are not familiar with that terminology, uh, office-based opioid treatment, also known as OBOT, uh, is an outpatient approach that uses prescribed medications such as buprenorphine, methadone, and naltrexone to treat opioid use disorder. And it aims to provide accessible, integrated care, often including counseling and social support in a more familiar and non-stigmatizing environment in the office. In the interest of time, though, we're only going to focus on the use of buprenorphine today, particularly combination buprenorphine and naloxone. Okay, so Dr. Levy, to start out with, could you tell us about your journey into the world of office-based opioid treatment? What was it that sparked your interest in this? Well, um, again, first off, let me say uh, just how much I love, love your What's the Proof podcast. It is so important and meaningful, so uh, it's an honor to be here, yeah. And secondly, uh, I think it's so funny that you mentioned earlier birding, and now you asked me about Spark, because I heard this story one time um, about how bird watchers and ornithologists, people who study birds, most always have what they call a spark bird. And that's some sort of initial experience with a bird that got them totally head over heels into birding. And so when people have asked me about this question, I I kind of think about it that way. Like what were my spark bird experiences? And so um, you, I've shared some of this with you, but my, um, I guess the, the big draw to me towards addiction medicine is that uh, back in 2019, our family was affected by addiction when uh, my brother-in-law, Jim, unfortunately died related to a, um alcohol use disorder that was really severe. And, um, and um, it was one of those things that made me really recognize how easy it is to not see um, use disorders. And um, so then the the other spark actually came during um, uh, a lecture uh, by one, someone who would be, you know, uh, end up becoming one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Blake Fagan, who works out of that Mountain AHEC program in Asheville. And he was doing a lecture on addiction um, during COVID, actually, right during the beginning. It was one of those famous virtual lectures. And I remember him talking. And at some point during the lecture, he mentioned that there were patients, many of whom he had seen, who were actually buying the treatment for their addiction from the dealers that they previously bought the opioids that they became addicted to. And I thought, gosh, in my 10 plus years of medicine, I have never heard of something where patients were actually going 
to the streets to buy something to heal their disease. And I don't know, it, it just was moving and it, you know, it made me want to get into action mode. And, and I set this like five-year goal back in 2020 of trying to talk to as many primary care doctors as I could to get them interested in trying to do this work and integrating it into primary care because um, I felt like there's just such a need and, and, um, and, you know, I've had incredible support from our organization. You and I both work for Atrium Health, which has been a great source of support and, and from our direct leaders, um, Jim, Erica, and Aaron, thank you guys. You're amazing. Um, the mentors that I mentioned earlier up in Asheville, uh, Blake Fagan and that AHEC program who've been doing this work for five years before I started doing it. And they are masters. They're doing incredible work across the state. And then uh, near and dear to my heart is what's called the Sun Program, which in our county, uh, Cabarrus County, is the Substance Use Network, which is this dynamic local group that's providing uh, care for pregnant mothers and their families with substance use disorders in a really holistic and patient-centered way, like the way that we should all be doing it. And the Sun Program and its, its main champion is an obstetrician named Dr. Russell Suda, who's a mentor, and then its CEO is Gina Hoford, a really dynamic individual. You know, they've opened a lot of doors for me and, and allowed me to piggyback on a grant that they have um, where I can go out and over this next calendar year start to do some talks with primary care providers um, about how they can integrate treatment of opioid use disorders in a primary care setting. So here we are. For those, uh, for those that are out there that haven't had that spark bird yet, why, why should a primary care physician consider incorporating this into their practice? Well, thanks, uh, thanks for asking the why. That's the, that's the almighty question always. So, um, you know, opioid use disorders, they're a part of most family doctors' practices. You know, we're the, we're the relationship specialists, really. Um, and we take care of the partners and children of patients who've overdosed. We have grandparents crying on our shoulders as they get thrust into raising children of families afflicted by this disease. We do those well checks, but we also do visits for the grandparents to keep them healthy. And, you know, many patients um, have opioid use disorders, but they're kind of like masked as other diseases. So we see them for their depression or insomnia or anxiety or pain disorders. And I don't know, offering them treatment um, allows patients to feel safe in their primary medical home. So I um, I had this one patient who I treated for depression, very refractory depression for probably close to 10 years, Bobby. Like we tried therapy and medicines and combinations of medicines and lifestyle interventions. And, and when those failed month after month, I sent her to a psychiatrist and they tried a new therapist and more medications and TMS and anything you can think of. And then one day she actually came to see me just for like a physical. And we were talking about like just purpose and meaning. And I was, I shared with her that I was starting to do this work and it was really enjoyable and it was then that she disclosed to me her use disorder, like she suddenly felt safe in that moment. And um, I didn't realize that I was kind of like part of a culture that makes people hide from their disorder, even 
like though I don't use stigmatizing language or anything, there was just something about the environment that wasn't inviting enough. So I had to invite her to see her own doctor, but um, it was really gratifying in that moment for sure. Um, so I, um, I do like talks now with primary care docs and I go around to different offices and try to find some champions. And, and when I do, I have this quote that I heard during a lecture I went to, and I always share it with them, which is the opposite of addiction is connection. And that's because so many people with disease feel very isolated. And so, I don't know, to answer your question, primary care docs should do this work because our patients need us and it's healing and it's rewarding. Um, and many of them want treatment um, and they should do it also because it's evidence-based. Yeah, well, that's a great segue into my next question for you, actually, uh, as we you know like to look at the evidence behind different practices here on this podcast. Can you share some of the key findings from, you know, any systematic reviews or randomized controlled trials that support the use of buprenorphine in treating opioid use disorder? Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, like, you know this already, but I deeply respect you and your ability to like review and synthesize evidence. So please jump in at any point as I'm talking with questions or additions. But I guess the thing um, that was most surprising to me when I first started looking at the evidence was how long we've had data about how safe and effective buprenorphine is for helping people with opioid use disorders. In fact, there's a New England Journal of Medicine article from 2003. Yes, 20 wow. years 20 ago. 20 years ago. <laughs> yes. <laughs> multi-center, double-blind, randomized control trial, 326 patients with opioid use disorders comparing people on uh, buprenorphine naloxone, the combination product, which is all that we prescribe, 16 milligrams, which is the standard dose. Most patients end up on 8 milligrams twice a day. So they were comparing a very common treatment that we use now to placebo. And after four weeks, the trial was halted because the results were so clear. So many patients reported like decreased or absent cravings, their urine drug screens were negative, which is kind of the marker in most studies for um, people not returning to use. And uh, this is exactly what we see in clinical practice. 20 years ago, we saw it. And today we see it. It's a highly effective treatment and it works quickly. Um, so then there was another study, 2009 Journal of Substance Use. This was looking at a longer duration of time, but still 15 years ago, Bobby, 15 years ago. Um, and in this study in Baltimore, they looked at 255 patients treated with buprenorphine for opioid use disorder and found long-term sustained disease control for about two thirds of patients over the study period, which was a year. And that there were certain groups that were high risk to fall out of care, which would not be surprising. Those are patients with polysubstance use disorders. Um, and, you know, the thing that's um, interesting is, in all, when we think about addiction, I always try to level set it and try to get people thinking about addiction the way we think about every other disease, all of our chronic diseases, and really having two-thirds of patients stay in care when you look across other disease states is very similar. So like asthma, hypertension, diabetes, we have very similar rates of patients who stay in care. So I thought that one was interesting. Um, and then 
there's a Cochrane review in 2014 comparing buprenorphine to placebo and buprenorphine to methadone. And this was a much bigger trial, 31 randomized control trials of moderate to high quality, 5,430 patients. And what they found was using standard dosing, again, that's 16 milligrams, which is the eight twice a day that we commonly land on. Uh, it was significantly, uh, it was statistically significantly better than placebo and to use buprenorphine, and it was very similar to standard dosing of methadone. Um, and it was, you know, the outcomes were again negative urines and keeping people in uh, in treatment retention. And so those studies show it works. And when we compile all that data, what we see is a number needed to treat of about four to keep people in recovery or keep them from returning to use. Wow. That's fantastic. That's a small NNT. Um, Don't see too many medications you can prescribe or any intervention really for that matter that can do it, have an NNT of four. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So now for the real reason providers in primary care should do this work, this is the life-saving data. And you and I have talked about some of this. This is really remarkable. There's two trials that I'll run through real quickly that show the mortality benefit for patients with opioid use disorders. And the first one was published in BMJ. It was in 2020. It was a large retrospective cohort trial, which we know is not the highest level of evidence. I hear your fingernails on the chalkboard over there. Um, But nonetheless, they studied 55,347 patients between 1996 and 2018. So this is when the opioid epidemic was escalating. And sadly, you know, during the study period, about 7,030 patients died. Um, And the mortality ratio was 4.6 for those on treatment and 9.7 for those not on treatment, suggesting that the treatment cuts mortality risk in half. And, um, the author's sub-analysis at the, you know, revealed that basically at the end of this study is when they really started to see more fentanyl use and, it, and, and the treatment results were actually more profound in the buprenorphine group when it was treating patients who were using fentanyl as their, um, as the opioid of choice. Um, so, the, so the numbers are even better. And then the most important study is the one we'll finish with, and that's the one that was in JAMA Psychiatry, and that was from 2021. This is the big one. So this is the one everybody should remember and know because it is big and powerful and profound. And basically it was a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized control trials and observational trials of over 750,000 patients with opioid use disorders. And they were getting treatment and it demonstrated a mortality benefit with a number needed to treat of, drumroll, two. Two. Can you think of anything more life-saving behind the door that you might treat in your average day in clinic? I challenge you to find anything with an NNT of two. That's uh, mind-blowing, to be honest. Yeah. Wow. Um, I I know the study you're talking about. I think, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely, I think, the highest level of evidence that we're going to get on this. I mean, I, I think the data is pretty pretty solid. Um, you know, looking at that particular systematic review, I think the the R, the RCT data I don't think was powered enough to show a, a mortality benefit, but the 
you know, meta-analysis of all the observational data uh, showed a you know, very strong correlation with a strong mortality benefit, which I think at this point, given all the effective, you know, RCTs about, you know, retention and avoidance of, um, you know, illicit opiate use, uh, I think it's pretty compelling. You know, when you get to a certain level of observational data, you can, you can almost come to a conclusive, you know, um, you know, you almost can come to a conclusion that's almost as good as having a massive amount of RCT data. Uh, it's why, you know, why we feel so confident about the risk of, you know, cancer with smoking, which is all based on observational data, but it's so compelling and such a large effect uh, that it makes sense. Um, so I think it's probably the best data we're going to get. And it's, to me, very convincing. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't know that about the the smoking literature, and I always always lean on you for for the best of evidence. So thanks. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, that's an amazing. Um, so you know, one of the criticisms I hear sometimes about um, doing OBOT is that uh, they make the argument that using buprenorphine for opioid use disorder is essentially trading one addiction for another. And so, how would you respond to that? Gosh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, so, gosh, I tell people treating opioid use disorder medically is so easy. I always preach it is one drug, three doses, one test. Really simple. It's buprenorphine, naloxone, 816 or 24 milligrams, and a urine drug screen. And of course, in the era of like the high potency synthetic opioids, we probably will start to use higher doses, but keep things simple. One drug, three doses, one test. Stigma, however, is the hard part of this disease because we have all grown up in a culture of using stigmatizing language and thinking about use disorders and addiction in a different way than we do medical disorders. So I don't know. I encourage providers to think about a disease that they're really good at treating. So think about migraines or COPD or arthritis, generalized anxiety disorder, diabetes, think of something, heart failure, um, and use that same model and equally important, use the same language and the same thought processes that you do to approach it. So trading one addiction for another would be like telling your patient with migraines who's missing work and family time to avoid preventative medications and abortive medications, you know, We offer lifestyle medicine prescriptions for all diseases, including opioid use disorders, and we use evidence-based medications. It's just how we treat in our field, you know? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me. Uh, I've heard a lot, you know, I think you're sort of alluding to the uh, harm reduction model, which, you know, is uh, basically, I think, the prevalent worldview when it comes to treating opioid use disorder. Can you explain what that concept is and how that applies to this treatment? Yeah. So, you know, harm reduction is something family docs, we use every day. We meet the patient where they are. You know, imagine a patient's got diabetes with limited ability to understand or implement like aggressive dietary interventions. I think, you know, that patient, they're the ones who usually bring like the best desserts to the office. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, you know, we still give them the best treatment. We still meet them where they are and and we follow and respond when their A1C is up in the winter and it's good in the summer. And, you know, um, you know that patient, right? Yeah. 
Absolutely. So harm reduction for opioid use disorders is similar. You know, patients may continue to use opioids or other substances. And when we discover this on an abnormal drug screen or more likely when they just tell us because we've created a trusting environment, we just get into problem solving mode. You know, you do your motivational interviewing like you would for an elevated A1C. Are there new stressors? Are there financial barriers? You know, how can we help? Um, how can we wrap services around you to, to help get your disease under control? So harm reduction really refers to helping the patient without an all or none approach. Okay. So for some of the doctors out there that may be considering, you know, starting this practice, what are some potential challenges or even downsides of implementing OBOT in their practice? Um, so honestly, I, I think there's few, if any, you know, when I, um, started, there was the X waiver, but I just want to be clear to all the listeners that is no longer, you know, listeners can Thank start <laughs> X, the X waiver listeners can start prescribing tomorrow. Um, I honestly think one of the biggest challenges is what we face every day, which is that we are practicing in a very complex field. Medicine's complex. The technology uh, can be challenging. There's an administrative burden that leaves providers oftentimes feeling overwhelmed, frankly, and, and often behind. And so the idea of, you know, some brilliant, talented, compassionate medical provider who's efficient and barely barely hanging on, adding one more thing, it's just daunting. It genuinely is not uh, something that most people want to do to take on more. So that, I think, is probably the big challenge. I guess the good news or the response to that challenge is that this um, medicine is very simple and the documentation is easy. It's not hard like a lot of things that we do. Um, and, you know, I always suggest to people that they just start by treating someone who's in a stable state and assume their medication and, and just follow them for their first year and do that with a handful of patients and grow their confidence and enjoy the medicine and learn the flow. And um, then if they really enjoy it, then they can start doing some of the initiations, which we'll talk about. Um, if you, you know, okay, the only precaution I would say is um, I recommend that people only use this combination product, which is the buprenorphine naloxone, to keep it simple. Um, there are some patients who might ask for something called Subutex, which is just buprenorphine without the naloxone. It's just a medication that has some potential for diversion. And um, as we know, the buprenorphine portion is a selective mu partial agonist. And so it uh, binds to the mu receptor and prevents other opioids from attaching and it can displace them. And it helps prevent cravings uh, and withdrawal. The naloxone, when taken orally, literally has no effect. The only reason it's included is it prevents injection um, causing overdose. So um, the, um, the, the bottom line is use the combination product, but not the mono product. And then um, the, um, the other thing I would just say is if patients seem too complex, if you're treating someone with polysubstance use disorder and they have 
um, a lot of needs that you don't feel like you can handle in your primary care office, it's okay to reach out to a higher level of care like you would with a more complex heart patient or um, or any other disease that you feel like you're at your, you know, the end of what you can treat. So you can reach out to intensive outpatient care or addiction medicine. Okay. So I love the simple mantra you gave earlier, the one drug, three doses, one test. Could you provide some practical insights into the dosing and initiation of buprenorphine naloxone? Uh, absolutely. And thank you again. This I feel like is really simple medicine and like in your average clinic, Bobby, I know you are doing things that are so much harder than this every day, every week. So, you know, to simplify again, it's one drug, three doses, one test. It's buprenorphine naloxone, the combo product, eight, 16 or 24. The majority of patients are on eight milligrams twice a day and a urine drug screen. And so let's think about two patients. Okay, patient one is a 68-year-old with type 2 diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease. He's got osteoarthritis of the spine, and he developed an opioid use disorder at 62 after years of being on and off narcotic pain medication for failed back surgery syndrome. He is stable on 16 milligrams of buprenorphine naloxone. He helps his son with a home improvement company, and he usually sees you twice a year for his well-controlled diabetes uh, follow-up. But he's paying $350 a month in cash for a five-minute Suboxone visit, and he asks if you will assume care. So you see him monthly. You start writing his Suboxone. You obtain a urine drug screen. You review the PDMP. You address his health maintenance, you, any health concerns that arise you address. It's simple. He's grateful for your care. You are grateful for his trust. That's it. Next patient is a 26-year-old who started experimenting with Xanax and oxycodone in high school. And after a decade of worsening use, she is now using a mixture of opioids like fentanyl or its analogs multiple times a day. And she really wants help. And I guess for simplicity, I want to just kind of go through a very standard approach. Um, and the key with these initiations that I think people used to call inductions, but it's basically just starting a medication, um, is that people have to be in mild to moderate withdrawal before starting their buprenorphine naloxone in order to prevent what I call POW. And POW is precipitated opioid withdrawal. And I nicknamed it that because it's terrible and you don't want patients to ever go through it because if they do, it will be very hard to get them to engage in treatment. Um, so most patients can actually tell you what withdrawal is. Unfortunately, most of the time that people are using, they're sort of chasing this bad feeling of getting away from withdrawal. So most patients can tell you when they're sick and in mild to moderate withdrawal, but the clinical signs are basically like in large pupils the size of a pencil eraser, goose flesh, you know, goosebumps, um, and the subjective, you know, discomfort, restlessness, anxiety, you know, diarrhea. Um, so you want to have the physical symptoms that you can notice and then the subjective symptoms. Um, and so what you do with that patient when they're in mild to moderate withdrawal, which they might not be in the office, you might have to counsel them, but 
you basically give them two milligrams and tell them they can take two milligrams every two hours until they reach eight milligrams on day one. And then on day two, you give them four milligrams to take every four hours until they get to 16 milligrams. And most people actually stop on day two at 12 milligrams, but some will get up to 16 milligrams. Then you see them back on day three and reassess how did it go, what worked, what didn't, what dose are we going to land on. And the majority of patients, again, land on that 16 milligrams, 8 milligrams twice a day. But it's basically 2, Q2, up to 8 milligrams on day 1, 4, Q4, up to 16 milligrams on day 2, and see them back on day 3, either a virtual visit or in person, and kind of, you know, rally the troops. That doesn't sound too hard at all. <laughs> yeah, and remember, like, our New England Journal of Medicine first study we talked about that got stopped after four weeks? Most patients are stabilized and feeling so much better within days. Well, Bobby, this has been awesome. I, you know, I think this is just amazing work that you're doing. I'm so glad that you are pioneering this in our practice. And you know, I think for me personally, you know, still very much a novice in you know doing this you know type of work. Uh, I really appreciate you know, the chance to have our listeners hear about what you're doing. And, uh, cause I really, I, I totally agree. I think this is, you know, life-saving work. Um, and I, I'm just, you know, continually amazed by some of the things that I hear that, uh, about people's lives being changed with it. So, um, so just to wrap up, uh, what are the, some key points that you'd like our listeners to take away from our discussion today? Well, um, thank you again for, the airtime and your great interviewing and your podcast, which again, I love. Um, so thanks for letting me be here. Um, you know, to wrap up, the opioid epidemic is here. Um, and it's a part of inpatient and outpatient primary care. And like many diseases, there's just not enough specialists to treat all the patients with this condition. So you know, the future of primary care and family medicine is that we have to start integrating this as one of the many diseases that we care for. And fortunately, it's easier than most. And many providers who start doing it really find it rewarding. Um, it's fun to stabilize this disease and watch all the other parts of someone's life improve and come together. It's so gratifying. So together we can do it uh, with just a few patients per provider. I mean, I'm I'm talking if every primary care provider took on a handful of patients, you know, one to five patients, we would just see a huge difference in this 150,000 people a year that are dying, you know. Um, so it's one drug, three doses, one test. Start with stable patients for a year. And if if you can, after that, start doing some initiations and, um, you know, there's a lot of resources. I am, um, I would be delighted to talk to anyone anytime. And if you want to drop, you know, my contact in the show notes, I'd be happy to reach out to people. I have a wonderful, wonderful network now of resources of people who will literally come to your practice and do one-on-one -on -one training with you, um, answer questions, you know, around the clock, after hours. Um, there's a lot of work being done in this space. So, um, just know that you're supported if you want to do this work and it is life-saving work. 
Yeah. Thank you so much, Bobby. Really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to come be on our podcast. And uh, I'm sure that uh, this is going to be inspiring and helpful to a lot of people. So thank you again. Thank you. Well, we are so grateful to Dr. Levy for joining us today on this episode. Uh, And the interview was just fantastic and Mm -hmm. it was insightful, inspiring. Uh, I'm curious to hear what the two of you think. Uh, Sandy, do you want to go first? Sure. I'm just, I couldn't be more proud that we, you know, our residency program supports this. Dr. Levy is such a phenomenal leader. We have so much support in the state. This is something that I have listened to for years now, and I'm just so happy to see the barriers being broken down. No more X waiver. Some of the stigmas going away. We have support of people that we trust, people that we know. When I was listening to the interview, I kind of teared up when I, when Dr. Levy was discussing his aha moment and his spark bird, you know, moment, and. I don't really have a a personal story so much, but I guess what kept hitting me was I don't want to wait for a spark bird. (laughs) You know, I don't see patients like you guys see patients, but I hear a lot of sad stories and I, I just don't think we need a spark. It doesn't have to be a tragedy. Let's just try to prevent the tragedy because I have had tragedy in my life. It hasn't been with opioid overdose, but it's it's something that's hard to watch and it's something that's hard to grieve, especially when you know it's preventable. So I just couldn't be happier that we're taking that next step. Don, what do you think? Yeah, I, it was very impactful for me I, I, as I was listening and reflecting on my own practice, you know, I have considered myself a very, very late adapter to this. I have a pretty full panel. I'm not accepting new patients now because of that. So I think, well, you know, my patients are fine and I'm not getting new patients. I just don't have the patient population to really learn to do this treatment. And I really can't hide behind that excuse anymore because it, as he gave the example, likely that one to five patients on my panel is probably on my panel. I just need to identify who hasn't felt comfortable enough to let me know that they need this help. Um, And I also love, you know, I can call Dr. Levy on his cell phone, hey, help me with this patient. And that's always been my plan when I get an opportunity to um, treat someone for the first time. I love that he actually said, hey, everyone listening to the podcast, give me, reach out to me, which is really a wonderful resource. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, I mean, I'm still, yeah, I, I'm probably in, I'm, you know, the phase of, I'm still in the phase of, you know, taking on those, you know, stable patients. I haven't really been, you know, into the initiation aspect of, you know, new starts on um, buprenorphine, but, you know, it, it is truly rewarding and, and I, it strikes me about just how we as family doctors are in just the prime position to make an impact on this. Just yesterday in clinic, I you know asked a patient you know that I just I had never not seen it before, but had ran, randomly come across a positive urine drug screen on a chart from a couple of years ago that I didn't see, and asked her about it, and and you know I was the first person she felt comfortable talking to about it just because, you know, I'd known her for a couple of years, the continuity, she trusts me. Uh, whereas she told me that previously she would never have admitted to that to anyone else. And so, you know, just the opportunity that we have with our patients, it, I hope that, that, I hope that this inspires people to, to 
want to try it out and and get involved because like you said we only need a you know one or one to five patients for each of us and we can make a huge impact so well that brings us to the end of today's episode we want to extend our sincere thanks to all of you our listeners for your continued support if you found this episode beneficial to your clinical practice please share it with your colleagues and follow us on your podcast app also, we'd love to hear from you. So reach out to us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at The Proof Podcast, or email us at whatstheproofpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time on What's the Proof. 